Would you uh, uh, open your Bibles, uh, find devices, Matthew chapter 4 this morning. Matthew chapter 4. The uh, brief series in Matthew that's not really a series um, that we're doing uh, is Jesus, our coming King. We just sang something about that King, didn't we? When we pray, we are coming to a King. The song urged us large petitions. We ask because we don't have an imagination of how great and resourceful and loving and giving our King really is. I told you last week we've been shadowing this King, Jesus, through Matthew's Gospel, from Bethlehem to Nazareth, through the waters of the Jordan as he submitted to a baptism of repentance. And now we've been following him into the wilderness where he is being severely tempted by the devil himself. I might mention, not in my notes here, but realize there's only two times in the scripture where the devil actually tempts somebody in the story externally. And in both cases, it was with a person who did not have a sin nature. Eve in the garden and Christ in the wilderness. James tells us every one of us is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. Uh, Satan certainly is active trying to discourage us and, and perhaps tempt us or his minions are doing this kind of thing. The, the truth is, though, often we sin because we want to. It's, it's in our own nature. It's in our own lust to do that. So we talk about the, uh, what Satan is doing here with Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11, it's, it's really a wonderful thing to have in our Bibles because we can see out in the open what is normally taking place in private in our hearts. And we can deal with it and understand what the attack is. Again, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He was starving. And said to him at that moment, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We're shadowing Jesus in the sense that we're watching his every move, learning from him as our greatest example as we submit to our King. But what we discovered last week is that Jesus isn't being led by the Spirit into the wilderness merely to show us how to resist temptation, even though we learn much from it. He is led into the wilderness to show us that He can resist temptation. He's showing us that where His ancestors, Israel, failed in their own wilderness temptation and fell into sin, Jesus succeeds and remains righteous, the righteous one who can save us. Did Israel fall into sin in the wilderness? Yes, they sure did. They fell hard. Even after that, all that even after all that God had done for them, they fell in the wilderness. You know, it's possible for people to receive uh, great mercy and kindness. It's possible for you and me to receive great mercy and kindness. 
but instead of being overwhelmed with gratitude and humility, to become angry and complain and demean or degrade the gift that has been given to us, even though we didn't deserve it. I was talking recently with someone who said that a homeless man approached her when she was coming out of Starbucks. And, 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 and he said, I'm hungry. Will you buy me something to eat? Well, it's kind of hard to say no when you have a you know, Starbucks in your hand, you know, when you're walking out of Starbucks. And so she said, fine, sure, I'd love to. And she went back inside and, and she bought one of the more expensive sandwiches and had them heated up. And she brought it out to the man and he took it out of the bag and looked at it and said, I don't want this garbage. And he threw it on the ground which is the G-rated version of actually uh, what happened. Now, you might think, who does this guy, this guy think he is? And he should be grateful. She didn't have to do that for him. But, you know, as you're aware, this little incident is, is simply indicative of the prevailing attitude in our culture in the U.S. right now, is it not? We, we commonly refer to this attitude as entitlement. Entitlement shatters Gratitude. Gratitude is a joyful and humble response to kindness you did not expect to, reserve, uh, to deserve. And, and entitlement is a cynical and arrogant response to kindness because you thought that you were owed something much better. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, serving Pharaoh who murdered their male children, remember? And forced them to labor ruthlessly. Exodus 1 says their lives were bitter and hard and they cried out to the Lord, when is he going to rescue us? Did he bring us to Egypt and just forget about us? So when God brought them out of Egypt with miracle after miracle, leaving the Egyptian economy and the Egyptian morale completely bankrupt, and led them victoriously across the Red Sea while drowning the enemies who had enslaved them. We're not surprised to find them singing and praising God on the banks of the Nile, uh, or I should say on the banks of the Red Sea that God had brought them across. They say in Exodus 15, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. It was this wonderful day of victory and rejoicing, as God did for Israel what they could never have done for themselves. But three days into the wilderness, three days into the wilderness, only a couple of verses after the song that they sang, they came to Marah, and could not drink the water because it was bitter. So they became bitter and began to complain. And the Lord caused the bitter waters to be sweet, and the people were satisfied. They traveled a few more days into the wilderness, and they started to run out of food. And again, the whole congregation of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Wow, that is really a change of attitude. When you're reading chapter 1 at how hard it was to be a slave in Egypt, and now you're looking at the bounty they're looking back on. They cried, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And Moses has got to be thinking of all the ungrateful things to say. 
So God feeds them with manna. We read this last week. And this cycle continues. They receive God's goodness. They respond with the sins of mistrust and skepticism and ingratitude. And later this leads them to other sins such as idolatry and immorality and disobedience. And we could keep reading right now the rest of the Exodus story and see this cycle again and again. But we can also listen to how later authors of Scripture look back on this wilderness time, mostly commenting on their the actions of their own people. In Nehemiah 9, verse 16, Nehemiah, after recounting God's mercies to the wilderness generation, said, but these wilderness Jews and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. In Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin, he recounted the rebellious history of his people who would not listen to God or obey him. He says, our fathers refused to obey, to obey Moses in this particular incident, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. They turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. In 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 5, after recounting God's blessings to the wilderness generation, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. It means they were utterly cast down. They were strewn about. They fell hard. That's what that word means. And Paul uses this example to warn believers, do not be idolaters as some of, their were, as some of them were. And we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. And we're destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did. And we're destroyed by the destroyer. And the writer of Hebrews draws upon the second half of Psalm 95 to warn his readers not to sin like the Israelites he says in verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, the, the author of Hebrews recognizing the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Notice, testing in the wilderness. That's what it was. It was a time of testing. Where your fathers put me to the test. Testing is monodirectional. God is free to test us all he wants. It is not wise, and in fact, it is sinful for us to try to test him. When your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, and there's the cycle, the miraculous works of God for them on their behalf, rescuing them, feeding them, leading them, followed by Israel testing God saying to him and to Moses, you're just trying to kill us. You don't care about us. You let us out of Egypt to, to, to be killed out here. Therefore, God says, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. And God says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And, and most of them did not. It was only their children who went into the promised land. So the writer of Hebrews uses this Old Testament example to encourage New Testament believers. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. 
But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. By the way, that's what temptation is. It's, it's deceitfulness to sin. God had mightily brought his people out of Egypt, the nation of Israel, whom he affectionately called his son. And he brought them out of Egypt through the water and into the wilderness for 40 years of testing so that he could give them his law on the mountain and send them into the promised land to be his light, calling the nations around Israel to him. But Israel, his son, failed the test time and time again. So finally, as he promised, God sent the Son, Jesus, the Messiah, to rescue them. As Matthew has showed us, God brought the Son out of Egypt and through the water and into the wilderness for 40 days of testing. And soon Jesus will go to another mountain and explain the law. And then he will continue to take the light of truth to his nation in preparation for them to take the gospel to the world. But first, Jesus the Son must pass the test where Israel the Son had failed. In the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus proves he is the Son of God who can save us. And he prepares us to face our own temptation. And don't forget what I said earlier, because it's key. Jesus isn't preparing us for temptation merely, merely by showing us, this is how you do it. You know, when Satan comes, do what I do. It's at least that. But he's actually preparing us by going through the temptation and not being overthrown by it himself. Not being stiff-necked. Or hardening his heart by not grumbling, by not being deceived, by not doubting the will of the Father, by not going astray like his ancestors did. So that when we are tempted to sin and to stiffen our necks and harden our hearts and to doubt God, we will not go astray from his will because we have an advocate in whom we can rely who already faced every temptation. Do you believe that this morning? He faced every kind of temptation that we will face, and yet he remained faithful to God in everything so that we can remain faithful to God in him by his strength. This is why Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. This is why he went through the waters of repentance. This is why he will go to the cross as a sacrifice. He is doing for us what we could never have done for ourselves. So what are these devilish temptations that Jesus faced on our behalf? What are the victories that he won for us that we should expect to see in our lives as we live for him and we resist temptation. Well, last week we saw that Jesus uh, resisted the temptation to defy the will of God. To defy the will of God. Because uh, it says the tempter came to him and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. It's, re it's a reference to the manna in the wilderness. And he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, very quickly, just re remind you what we, we talked about last week. When Jesus says, it is written in this time of temptation, he's always quoting from the same place in the Old Testament, from a couple of chapters in Deuteronomy, chapter 6 or chapter 8. In Deuteronomy 8.3, he's quoting what we 
read in Matthew's, what we read in Matthew's Greek text, really, which is literally identical to what we find here, uh, what is going on in Deuteronomy is that Moses is talking to the children of Israel before they're about to go into the promised land. Talking about what, what, all their, what, what their parents learned, even though they were buried out back in the wilderness. And Moses has gathered the people and, and reminding them, this is what God taught you. And when you go into this land, you need to continue to learn from this lesson and follow God the right way, not the way your, your parents did. And Moses tells them, God humbled you and let you hunger. Do you know that God in his will sometimes lets us hunger? And then he feeds us? In this case, he fed them with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers. We saw this last week in Exodus 16. The manna came with rules. How it was to be gathered. When it was to be gathered. When not to gather it. How much of it to gather. Just like all of God's gifts are governed by his will. Just because God gives us something doesn't mean we can do with it anything we want. It's not about the gift. God's good gifts are opportunities for us to obey God and to follow his will. So Israel discovered it's not about the bread. It's about God's will concerning the bread as expressed in his word. Moses says, God fed you with manna that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God shall man live. In other words, it's about obeying God, the words that come from his mouth. God literally brought them to a place of hunger in the wilderness, a place where they needed God's miraculous and good gift of food so that he might teach them not only to rely on him, but also to obey him, even though they never fully learned that lesson. So Jesus is led by the Spirit to fast for 40 days much longer than the Israelites ever went without food, by the way. And Satan tells him, break your fast. The Son of God shouldn't be starving like this. Make some manna. But Jesus said, no, we've been here before. This is not the will of the Father, and I'm going to trust the Father and wait on his provision. So Jesus stood where Israel fell, where you or I would have fallen under the pressure of, to misuse God's gifts. Jesus withstood the temptation to defy the will of God. Now, this morning there are two other ones, and I'm going to endeavor in the time we have left to actually cover uh, both of these. So listen really fast. Uh, There's a second devilish temptation that Jesus faced that day in the wilderness. Not only did he face the temptation to defy the will of God, but he also faced the temptation to deride the care of God. That is, to treat the care or protection of God with contempt. To make a mockery of it. He is tempted to call God's care into question. How did the devil tempt Jesus to do this? Well, it says in verse 5, he took him to the holy city, which is Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and 
on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. I made the comment last week, and somebody else mentioned it to me yesterday, so I know it must have, somebody must have heard this, uh, but sometimes we come away from Matthew 4 thinking, all we have to do is quote scripture, the devil, and then he'll, he'll run away from us. No, James says, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. The devil doesn't care about quoting scripture at him, he'll just quote it right back. This is what he does to Jesus. But Jesus isn't quoting scripture as some kind of magic formula to make the devil run away. He's, he's, he's saying, this is what the word of God says, and this is where I stand. He's, he's telling the devil, this is why I'm saying no. And, and there's a good lesson there. We, we have to know the word of God if we're going to stand by the word of God. But just quoting it doesn't do anything. We need to obey it. We need to follow it. Now, I don't know what goes through your mind when you think of the pinnacle of the temple. But many scholars believe that it's talking about actually the corner of the temple court near Solomon's portico, which you can see there uh, on the right. Um, Estimating conservatively, uh, this would have been about a drop of 150 feet to the pavement below. Now, some say if this pavement didn't actually exist at the time, we're not sure because of Herod's renovations whether it was there yet, uh, it would have been a drop of about 400 feet into the Kidron Valley. So it's a pretty long fall either way. And it seems to me that Satan was allowed to maybe transport Jesus to this location in Jerusalem. I mean, it doesn't say how they got there, actually, just as the, the devil took him. They could have walked, but, I mean, that would have been a bit of a journey. And it bothers me kind of because I'm like, what would they have talked about, you know, uh, walking all that way, all right? I'm sorry, it's just the way I think. I'm like, I mean, it would have been like kind of a lot of silence, I would think, you know? I mean, he's going to rule the world and Satan's going to go to the lake of fire eventually. So um, that's kind of a conversation stopper. But anyway, Satan uh, tempts Jesus here to throw himself down from this amazing height, and to watch God's protection. And he quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. It's actually Psalm 90 in the Greek Old Testament, which I won't take the time to show you this morning, because Matthew's text is literally word for word from from the psalm in in the Greek text. And this psalm is all about God's protection in time of trouble. Many of you have been comforted by the words of the psalm. If you have several psalms memorized, I'll bet one of, Psalm 91 is one of those ones you've memorized some of these, these words. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And the psalm goes on to promise God's complete protection. And I just lifted some of the phrases out to display them here. He says, he will deliver you. He will cover you. You will find refuge. You will not fear. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. And it goes this way all the way down to verses 11 and 12, where Satan is quoting from. Where he says, he will command his angels concerning you. And the psalm says to guard you in all your ways. And then Satan continues, on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot. And in this case, maybe a head and an arm and everything else if he jumps uh, against the stone. Satan encourages Jesus Jesus, you know, if you're the son of God, jump to safety. That's what he's doing. He's not jumping to his death if God's protecting. He's jumping to safety. God promises he will save you. Don't you think he can do it? He says he will right here in this psalm. Do you think he can save you or not? Or if you jump, would that really be the end of you? If you think God can save you, then, then prove it. 
Well, how does Jesus answer? Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, he goes back to what is written. And he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, what does Jesus mean by this before we unpack some of this? Maybe a lot of you have heard that this is a temptation to do something stupid or foolish in order to test God's care. Someone said, for instance, that if Jesus threw himself 150 feet to his death, it would force the angels to save him because obviously God's not going to let his son die at this point before he gets to the cross. But I don't think the context or the scriptures both Satan and Jesus are citing support this view in exactly the way I just described it. In fact, if you think about it, where would you draw the line on an activity that is so dangerous that somebody would say, you're actually tempting the Lord? Does it mean it's a sin to play contact sports like football or go mountain climbing or skydiving or maybe skydiving? Uh, I mean, can, can, can a believer never take a job as a stuntman, you know, or run the Ironman? Should we, should we cancel the summer whitewater rafting trip because, you know, there's a danger of drowning? We have to sign waivers, you know? Is, is this the kind of thing that is going on here? And I, I'm just saying I don't think that Satan is tempting Jesus to try to do something extreme necessarily to force God to save him. And in fact, if we think of it that way, we, we kind of miss the bigger point. Rather, Satan is suggesting that if Jesus does not throw himself down, it will be proof that he really doesn't believe Psalm 91. He doesn't believe God will protect him. See, this temptation is a very subtle trap. It's almost like Jesus uh, is forced to call the, the care of God into question whether he does or whether he doesn't. Because in order for Jesus to test whether God's will will save him, even to, even to think about it, is to call God's care into question where there should be no doubt. Israel, God's son, was led in the wilderness to be tested. Jesus, the son of God, was led into the wilderness to be tested for us. But it is a sin to turn the tables and test God, we should already believe without a doubt that God will save when he allows us in his will to come into a situation where we need saving. Let me show you this from the scripture. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 16. Remember, it's Deuteronomy 6 or Deuteronomy 8 is where he's pulling these scriptures from. This is, this, these are the lessons that Israel learned that Moses was rehearsing with them. And Jesus has learned these lessons from the scripture and he's standing on them. This is where Moses reminds the people that no longer should they put trust in God to the test. As they tested him at Massa, he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tempted him at Massa. So, what is the temptation at Massa? Well, we find out if we go to Exodus 17. Here's the story. All the congregation of the people of Israel uh, moved from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Okay, this is a common problem in the wilderness. They're running out of water. 
Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Now, now the, the, the focus of the anger is against Moses, but they're being reminded all the time, if you read the narrative, that they're really in, in, in kicking against Moses. They're actually kicking against God because Moses is, is God's representative. He's leading the people out through this man. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? And then notice, why do you test the Lord? It's not just me you're against. It's against, you're against the Lord. They are testing the Lord by challenging Moses. Give us water to drink. Moses calls this a quarrel because they're not asking God in faithful prayer for their needs. That's not the attitude here. The attitude has, is everything about this. They're not saying, well, God's not supplying. Let's really pray and let's trust him. They're grumbling. They're complaining. They're freaking out, we might say, because we're thirsty and our kids are going to start dying of thirst. They don't believe God is going to take care of them. That's the premise. They're saying, oh, great. Good job, Moses. Here we are again. You got us all the way out here. And now we're going to, I mean, after all that we went through in the Red Sea and all the crossing, whatever, now you're just going to let us die here. Do you really think God's going to help us again? Verse 3 says, the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? That's not the, that's not the last time he's going to ask that question. <laughs> what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Skipping down to verse 6. God tells Moses, behold, I will stand before you there and on the rock at Horeb. This is where he's going to strike the rock. Notice God says, I will stand before you. God says, I'm going to go with you. I'll be there with you. You'll strike the rock. Water shall come out of it. And the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. They all drank from the water that came from the rock. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, now notice, is the Lord among us or not? That is not a question of faith. We might sometimes say, God, where'd you go? Are you, are you here with me? There, there are questions of faith. You read about them in the Psalms where God's people are really asking, honestly, God, where'd you go? You said you'd be here for me. It seems like there's trouble and, and the deadline's coming or this need isn't being met. Where are you? But that can be a question of faith or it can be a question of despair and doubt. This is the second kind. Is the Lord among us or not? That's the question. It's a question that comes from skepticism. You see, they're deriding God's care. They're degrading it by being skeptical about it. We commit the sin of tempting God, challenging him, deriding his care, when in our heart we really don't think God's going to take care of us. When we can look at all of the enormous blessings of God in our past and still doubt God in the present... Because he's not meeting this particular need at this particular time in this particular way that I think he should be meeting it. In fact, I could be wrong about this, but it seems to me that a lot of us are, are conspicuous about the first temptation. I, sh I should say we're conscious about the first temptation Jesus faced to defy the will of God. I mean, I know that, uh, you know, I'm being tempted to disobey God's command. We know intuitively, okay, I read the word of God, I know God's will, I know this is wrong. 
We wrestle with that. But when trouble comes and the pressures of life start to make us feel uncomfortable, we are tempted to give lip service to our trust in God's care. We can talk about it in our little prayer circle. We can talk about it when we share prayer requests. While really, we are focused on doing everything we can, humanly speaking, to solve our problem on our own. And that is really because we're trusting in our effort rather than trusting in God. We really don't think God may be paying attention. It's easy to say that we're trusting in God's care in financially hard times, for instance, when we have an impressive saving account to draw on in case of emergencies. But when really hard times come because we've been working really hard to save and then one thing after another happens and we watch that account deplete and then we have this big need and we've been trying to be faithful, we've been trying to to follow God like he wants us to and, and all of a sudden we've come to the end of our resources. And we can be like, okay, hello up there, you know. God, what are you doing? I'm doing everything I can to follow your will down here. I've sacrificed. I've sacrificed more than other people. I've done a lot for you. When are you going to start blessing me like you've blessed that other family? Like you've blessed that other person? And we start making plans and decisions without really consulting God about them at all because we've lost our confidence in his concern for us. We've seen his care in the past, but it doesn't seem like he's going to come through now for, for one reason or another. Maybe we're discouraged. Maybe it, we feel like the, the need is just too great. Or even worse, we test God. when We call upon God to help in a particular way at a particular time, but in the back of our minds, we're just giving God ultimatums. We're really just testing him. We're gonna, yeah, yeah, I'm going to pray about this, but I, I know what the answer is already. I don't think God's going to do anything. We're just not going to be able to follow God's will like we thought we could. You know, God, you want me to serve you, and I, I'm, I'm willing to do it, but you're making it too hard for me. Because you're not coming through here. And we must know that if we are ever tempted to become skeptical about God's care of us, if we are tempted to be impatient or to despair, this is the plan of our arch enemy. He wants us to question God's care. God's provision. He wants us to look down from the dizzying height of our troubles and debate whether our uh, you know, drop-off is too much for God to deal with. And in this moment, we need to say, no, I'm not going to tempt God. I'm going to trust God. God can test me all he wants, but I am not going to test him. I'm going to be satisfied with where he has placed me and what he has given me. And I'm going to trust him to provide what is best for me and continue to faithfully and follow uh, follow him and serve him no matter what. As Job said, if he should slay me, yet I will trust in him. Well, there's one more attempt by the devil in this passage to attempt Jesus, uh, to tempt Jesus to sin. He says in verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And again, I think maybe perhaps in some supernatural way, Satan takes Jesus to another stop on this tour, this tour of temptations. This time, a nondescript high mountain with a panoramic view. And even then, Jesus could not, of course, see 
all the kingdoms and their glory from this uh, mountaintop, but somehow through visions or descriptions, Satan is able to put on display all of the kingdoms of the world and their might and their wonders and their glories. And at that time in the first century, this would have included all of the Roman Empire, the Parthian Empire way to the east, the Han Dynasty in China. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And all of these earthly glories were Satan's to give. For at this point, he is still allowed to rule over the world, though never outside of God's control. Now, as we know, Jesus will already gain everything that Satan is offering him. God says to the Son in Psalm 2, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But Satan is making Jesus an offer he can't refuse. Trade the kingdom of God for the kingdom of Satan. Now, why would... Would Jesus make such a deal? In fact, I remember uh, as a kid reading The Temptations, and I was like, you know, Satan's got to be running out of ideas here because how in the world could he ever get Jesus to actually bow down and worship him? I mean, it was like, it was like maybe one last-ditch weak effort. But think about it from Jesus' human perspective. He's God, but he's man. He's, he's wrestling with things, and, and he's wrestling with the deception just like you and I would. It would mean all of the people of the earth bowing to him now, doing his bidding now, and his possessing all of the resources of the, of the earth now, and all of this without the cross, without the shame and humility, without the cup that God had chosen for him, which he wrestled about on the night that he was betrayed. But it would also mean that the kingdom would no longer be given to him by the Father. The kingdom would be given to him by Satan. And worst of all, it would mean that Jesus would have to give devotion to Satan, even for a moment, in order to get it. So Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Those angels who would have caught him if he had jumped from the pinnacle of the temple, they attended here to his every need. If the temptation to turn stones to bread is ultimately the temptation to defy the will of God. And to jump from the temple is the temptation to deride the care of God than to worship Satan in exchange for his gifts is the temptation to despise the glory of God because that is exactly what Jesus is being asked to do. The glory of God is the sum total of God's power and beauty and knowledge and perfection and providence and will. And for Jesus to take his absolute love and devotion and faithfulness to the Father's glory and offer it even for a moment 
to the Father's archenemy, Satan, would be to despise the Father's glory. Jesus himself will teach this two chapters later in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And money here is not the normal word for money. As many of you know, it's actually the word mammon, which is still in our our King James, I think, and maybe our New King James. Uh, it's, It's used to refer to material wealth that promises happiness in this life. Instant gratification. It's a word that means, in essence, something we trust in, something we place our hope in besides God. And Jesus says, you have to choose. Your life will be devoted to God and His glory and His plan for your life and His desire and His provision. Or you will look at something that is offered to you in this world of sin and be tempted to set your affection on it and desire it and to take it, though you know it's not God's will for your life. But at the heart of your decision is really an act of worship. It's an act of love. The wrestling match inside is what you're going to give your heart to. What are you going to love and serve? Because you can't have it both ways. These are the devilish temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness, and these are the same that you and I will probably face later today, and I dare say later this week. Maybe a lot. We will be tempted to defy what we know is the will of God. The choice to sin will be placed right in front of us. And like Jesus fasting 40 days in the wilderness, we will hunger to choose this sin. And we will also be tempted to deride the care of God. We, we know what God has promised. We know how he has shown his care for us in the past. But, but, but are we really going to trust him now? We'll be tempted to despise the glory of God. That means to love and worship the culture rather than the creator. To love myself more than God. To love my image more than God. I don't want to do that. That's, that's not the vibe I'm going for. As if our vibe is anything that matters. We're so arrogant. We're so full of pride. As if anything could be more glorious and worthy of our time and attention and love than the worship of God himself. And sometimes these temptations seem too hard for us to bear, too difficult to overcome. We we, we think of them right now, we're like, I'm ready, I'm ready. But in the moment when nobody else is around, when nobody will know, that is when we're like Christ in the wilderness with nobody around But our hope this morning is in the fact that Jesus already faced every one of these without flinching. Jesus never even gave it a thought. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. I'm here to obey God alone. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I'm here to trust God alone. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you will serve. I'm here to worship God alone. 
And because as a believer in Christ, you have placed your faith in him, you already have everything you need. You really do. That's what the New Testament teaches us. You already have everything you need by God's grace to stand like Jesus did. And so no matter what temptation you face this week, you can stand in the power of Christ and say, no, I'm going to trust God and I'm going to obey God and I'm going to worship God. Obedience and trust and worship or love devotion. If we can keep those three commitments in our minds, this is what Christ has laid out for us. And they're like an umbrella which stretches over any temptation. And we can say no to that temptation and yes to God. No, not because of what we can do. Not because of our strength. But because of what Jesus already did for us. Let's go out and live for God in that power, for God's glory. Father, we thank you that you...